Amy Pickering, your host for this edition of Making Connections News. We have a number of stories this month. First, Eastern Kentuckians give their thoughts on taking the COVID-19 vaccine, especially by folks with underlying conditions like diabetes. We then hear White House National Climate Advisor Gina McCarthy on President Joe Biden's plans for investment in coal-dependent communities. Next up, a press conference on two studies on repairing the damage from orphan wells and abandoned mine lands and providing good jobs in the process. And finally, a story from Letcher County where some residents are fearful of increased landslides and flooding from mine-damaged lands. Let's get started. Currently, around 50% of Kentucky adults have received at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. Public health officials believe we'll need to vaccinate 70 to 85 percent of the population to stop the spread of the virus. And there are concerns that the vaccination rate is slowing down. But a new poll indicates that a majority of Kentuckians favor getting the shot. Kentucky News Connect reports. Half of Kentucky adults who are reluctant to get a COVID-19 vaccination say they'd be open to changing their minds if they had more information, according to a new poll by the Foundation for a Healthy Kentucky. Foundation Vice President Allison Adams says if public health officials can reach the Kentuckians who are reluctant to get a COVID vaccine with facts and data, and more of them decide to be vaccinated, the state will likely be in a much stronger position in terms of herd immunity. It is generally safer to achieve herd immunity through vaccinations than someone getting sick because we know Kentuckians have gotten really sick and many have died. The poll highlights the demographic groups, one in three men, four in ten Republicans, and one-third of people living in suburban or rural communities who reported they would probably or definitely not roll up their sleeves for the vaccine. Of those reluctant to get the vaccine, the groups who say they're open to changing their minds with additional information include 47% of Republicans, 53% of people in rural counties, and 53% of high school graduates. So that's important for us to to learn and understand as we build our partners and collaborations and recruit messengers as well as craft the right message. The poll also found Kentuckians are nearly split on whether they believe getting a COVID-19 vaccine is a personal choice or part of everyone's responsibility to protect the health of the community. Adams emphasizes it's okay to ask questions about the safety and efficacy of the vaccines. Whether that's your, you know, your healthcare provider, whether that's your person at church or your best friend, to go and ask those questions so that you can have that informed decision. According to the survey, older Kentuckians are more likely to have already received or still intend to get the shot, along with college graduates. For Kentucky News Connection, I'm Nadia Romlagan. In Kentucky, anyone aged 16 or older is now eligible to sign up for a coronavirus vaccine. And while our local health care providers encourage all Eastern Kentuckians to get vaccinated, there are many folks for whom it's even more important because they have underlying health conditions which could make the coronavirus very serious or deadly if they get it. One of those health issues is type 2 diabetes. From our ongoing WMMT series, Prevent Diabetes EKY, Parker Hobson has this story. As a volunteer firefighter for Jeannie Wheeler of Johnson County, her job was stressful enough already before the pandemic hit. 
it's not always a fire that we respond to, but accidents, medical emergencies, all those kinds of things. So, you know, you may be up close and personal uh, in a lot of situations. So it's been a little difficult here in the last year or so. Jeannie is also a retired nurse. And being in regular close contact with strangers as a firefighter, she says it's been hard sometimes not to think about the coronavirus. Yeah, it's always in the back of my mind. It's like, you know, I have medical issues myself. I have elderly parents who have medical issues. Uh, I have grandchildren that are around me occasionally. So it, it worries me that, you know, I might expose myself to something that I don't want for sure, and I sure don't want to take into anybody else. And while a lot of us have been nervous about getting the virus, for Jeannie, the stakes are a little different. She has type 2 diabetes, and while she says she keeps healthy and manages her blood sugar well, health professionals say that type 2 is one of several conditions, like COPD or black lung disease or heart disease, that could make the symptoms of COVID-19 worse if you were to happen to get it. So when she became eligible for a vaccine, Jeannie says she didn't hesitate. Well, uh, given my current medical state, I had to make a decision on whether do you take a chance on getting it because you know with your diabetes that, you know, in all likelihood, if it's a bad case, you're not going to make it through. Or do you go ahead and take a chance on taking the vaccine? And I had no no issues with, with deciding that the vaccine was the way to go. And for me, you know, I was I was always for vaccinations for my children. And my daughter's a frontline worker. Uh, she had her vaccines. My parents have had theirs. And they're like 85 and 89 years old. And uh, they did exceptionally well. They had no side effects whatsoever from either dose. You know, this is, it's not a local thing. It's a major worldwide issue. And, you know, all the other countries are in the same position that we are. So we just have to take a chance. We do know that people with diabetes are more likely to have more serious complications from COVID-19. Denisa Watts is a registered nurse and a licensed diabetes educator with the Kentucky River District Health Department in Knott County. So we really encourage people, you know, with diabetes to talk to their physicians and to, you know, consider having that COVID vaccine. And also, we know that the risk of getting sick from COVID-19 is it's likely to be lower if their diabetes is well-managed. So we know right now is a very stressful time and Lots of times when we're stressed, we we kind of get lax in doing some of those important things, you know, our healthy eating, our physical activity. But it's more important now than ever to try to keep, you know, those blood sugars in control and try to keep their diabetes well managed. Denisa says she got her vaccine literally as soon as she could. Absolutely. The first day it was available for me, (laughs) 
and I'll never forget. It was an emotional day too, you know, because just thinking what, you know, the changes in our lives over that past year, um, and to think about, you know, this vaccine, how wonderful it was, you know, that step in getting back to some normalcy in our lives. While Denisa knows some people might have questions about the vaccine, she says people should know that their doctors and nurses and health professionals are getting vaccinated themselves. Denisa herself has even been helping to give out COVID vaccines on top of her diabetes work. In the local health departments, we had long waiting lists when the vaccine came out, folks wanting, you know, to get their name down. I think most healthcare providers really feel strongly that the advantage of taking the vaccine greatly outweighs, you know, the possible risk from the vaccine, which, you know, there are other folks who have more side effects, but from what I'm seeing as a provider, the majority of the time it's just, you know, a little sore arm. And most of those side effects we we do see have been going away, you know, in 24, 36 hours. It, it, it doesn't last long in general. With my vaccine, the first one, my arm was a little sore. Here again is Jeannie Wheeler of Johnson County. Uh, the day afterward, I was a little sluggish, you know, but nothing really drastic at all. And with the second one, my arm got pretty sore that time. The next day, I just wanted to kind of lay around the house and didn't really feel like eating much that day or anything. But, I mean, there was no side effects that weren't really any major issues. Speaking of side effects, you might have heard that the FDA recently recommended a temporary pause on the one-dose Johnson & Johnson vaccine. According to the FDA, that was because of rare instances of a serious blood clotting issue in the days following the shot. Health experts, though, say this side effect is incredibly rare. So far, it's happened to just six out of some 6.8 million people who've gotten the Johnson & Johnson shot. And they say the pause was a sign the system is working like it should to help medical providers best look out for people who might end up with these rare side effects. Here in Kentucky, the vast majority of vaccines given out have been from Pfizer or Moderna, and there have been no reports of a similar issue with them. For her part, Denisa says she believes in the public health systems that test and regulate our vaccines. I've been a public health nurse for 33 years. I've always been an advocate of all of our vaccines. I spent many years vaccinating babies, young children with some of the Tdap vaccines, the measles, mumps, rubella, chickenpox. So we just really encourage people, uh, those not only with diabetes, but anyone, to look at those possible risks if they actually did contract the COVID-19 virus and kind of, you know, weigh the risk with the vaccine. It's not something that has been looked at lightly, and it's been tested, uh, trials. So, you know, we feel that it is a safe vaccine. 
you know, with the fire department, we have a lot of EMTs and we have career firefighters as well as the volunteers and stuff. And they have all uh, been more than willing to take the vaccine and protect themselves, you know. So, I mean, it's not like anybody is forcing you to do that, but it's just a personal decision that you have to make yourself. Uh, I'm a, a very devout Christian and I just, you know, the Lord has got it in his hands and whichever way it works out, you know, is, is the way it's going to be. But I, I see no reason to take chances that you don't have to take. So therefore, the vaccine was that was my choice. All Kentuckians aged 16 and up are now eligible for a COVID vaccine. And all Virginians aged 16 and up will be eligible as of Sunday, April 18th. For more about the vaccine or how to find it near you, talk to your doctor, call your county health department, or if you're in Kentucky, visit vaccine.ky.gov. And if you're in Virginia, that's vdh.virginia.gov. Reporting for WMMT, I'm Parker Hobson. As a final note, if you have type 2 diabetes and you're looking to get your A1C under control, health departments and clinics across the region offer diabetes self-management support and education classes. And if you think you might be at risk for type 2, there are also diabetes prevention programs that support stopping diabetes before it starts. You can find out more about these programs and hear local stories about preventing and dealing with type 2 at preventdiabetesEKY.org. Switching gears a bit, next up, Gina McCarthy, the White House National Climate Advisor, speaks with Jeff Young, Managing Editor of the Ohio Valley Resource. This interview is the first episode of Appalachia America, a new podcast created by our friends at OVR. Pittsburgh is sometimes called Appalachia's northern capital. It's the place that burned Appalachian coal to forge all that iron and steel. It's where workers formed some of America's first unions. And it's the place President Joe Biden picked to launch his green infrastructure and climate initiative. It's not a plan that tinkers around the edges. It's a once-in-a-generation investment in America. Unlike anything we've seen or done since we built the interstate highway system and the space race decades ago. Biden talked about his plan for a greener future in a place with a history of organized labor and heavy industry powered by fossil fuels. You think that's a coincidence? Nope. In a moment, we'll hear Biden's top advisor on climate change explain why moving forward on clean energy has to include the people who powered this nation in the past, people from Appalachia. Welcome to Appalachia America. I'm Jeff Young. This week, we're talking with White House Climate Advisor Gina McCarthy. McCarthy says the Biden administration hopes to win over people in the places that made our steel and mined our coal. We do have to act. We have to act on climate, but we also have to act to make sure that there's no worker and no community left behind. 
And as parts of Appalachia dig out from yet another flood, we'll hear how high water has become Appalachia's biggest climate change risk. I had people say, you know, it's been 15 years since this happened. Don't worry about it, it's not gonna happen again. (laughs) And here we are again, almost exactly a year later. It's Welcome to Appalachia America. In his first week as president, Joe Biden signed a batch of executive orders putting climate change, quote, at the center of U.S. foreign policy and national security, end quote. And he said his administration will not pit the environment against the economy. Rather, he pledged in a major speech in Pittsburgh to deliver environmental justice along with well-paying jobs and economic growth. Much of that work falls to our guest on this episode, Biden's national climate advisor, Gina McCarthy. Now, if the name rings a bell, it's probably because McCarthy was President Obama's choice to lead the Environmental Protection Agency. Among other things, at the EPA, she finalized the Clean Power Plan. That's something that a lot of Appalachian coal state leaders sued to stop. Well, now she's tasked with another kind of outreach to coal country. She's tackling climate change while also coordinating investment in those places that could feel threatened by climate policy. The kind of communities that depended on mining coal, drilling for gas, or uh, hosts for a fossil fuel power plant. So, for example, the administration just recently announced millions of dollars for cleaning up abandoned coal mine lands and trying to put them to more productive use. So, Gina McCarthy, as the president's climate advisor, you also lead something called, now pardon me, I had to take a deep breath for this one, the Interagency Working Group on Coal and Power Plant Communities and Economic Revitalization. Whew. I was going to say, that, that's kind of a long name, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Might think of a snappier title. I don't know. Yeah. But importantly, what is the goal there? And I guess perhaps more importantly, how do you see achieving your goals there? Well, first of all, thanks for letting me have a few minutes of your time. So President Biden has been very clear that certainly we have to address the issue of climate change, but we need to bring a whole of government approach to this, which is what my job is about. It's not just looking at greenhouse gas reductions, but looking at how we turn that into the biggest opportunity we have to grow jobs and to look at recapturing the 21st century economy again, and to focus on those communities that are most vulnerable and left behind first. And so part of the reason why we pulled together a White House task force that's really looking at coal communities and power plant communities for economic revitalization investment is because those communities were the powerhouse that brought us the industrial revolution that has made this country great. And they are the ones that are hurting the most. They have vulnerabilities. And if you look at this as an opportunity to grow jobs, 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 we need to grow jobs, jobs, jobs there first. How do we work with these communities and start focusing on job growth and economic revitalization? And I'm really pleased we had had our first meeting and we have our first success story, you know, and that is a, a story that's looking at resources that the Department of the Interior identified that are $260 million that is either in the hands of states that can be utilized 
to uh, pretty much immediately get people back to work looking at closing those abandoned coal mines, which actually represent a hazard and have actually uh, damaged a lot of rivers and streams and and water sources. Mm -hmm. And we can actually work with states to put people back to work using the skills they already have Secondly, we've identified $110 million at DOI in new money, and this new money is going to be all about working and listening to those communities about what economic revitalization we have available. It's about taking these steps to not just close these coal mines, but to look at how we're going to actually build hubs of economic development in those areas, to find ways that put people back to work right away. That's important work, I think, both to address the legacy costs from mining and create new opportunities. However, uh, you know, I'm I'm from this region, and I know that folks here have heard a lot of promises in the past, uh, job training that's going to turn things around for their communities, uh, investments in industrial parks on old mine lands that don't necessarily come to pass. And there's quite a bit of skepticism because they haven't really come to fruition. Also, I know that a lot of people here are fearful that they'll be on the losing end of climate action. The climate action means that they'll be the ones who end up paying the price in terms of further lost jobs. How do you overcome that kind of skepticism and what's your plan to address that? I think the only way to overcome it is to actually take action. President Biden is a labor champion. This is not new for him. He's been a champion of workers his entire life. And so he's recognized even from day one that when he hears the word climate, he thinks jobs, jobs, jobs. And I think that's great, great, great. (laughs) Because I do think it's all about looking at how we grab back the manufacturing jobs and revitalize. It's all about what kind of investment and infrastructure we're going to make. And so I do not at all blame people for being skeptical. You know, there there has been a downward trend of jobs in these communities. I think that's why we wanted to make sure that our first announcement wasn't, we got everybody together and to hold hands and think about this. It was actually real money on the table that's ready and available now, because we do have to act. We have to act on climate, but we also have to act to make sure that there's no worker and no community left behind. And part of this, as you know, is allowing people to stay at home in their own communities. It's not asking them to go somewhere else to build renewable energy. It's about recognizing that, yes, we are making a transition to clean energy. It's happening and it's been happening, but but we have to have our eyes wide open about what those opportunities are to keep people at home in jobs they can do today, which these jobs are, and places where they live today, which these jobs are. You know, this is not going to be an easy road forward, but if we shut our eyes to the fact that the transition is happening or who's being left behind, then we're going to miss real opportunities to make people's lives better. And labor has to be a big part and they have to be at the table. You know, we don't want just any jobs here. We want high paying jobs and we want union jobs. You know, these folks built our country on the backs of union workers. Let's make sure those union workers actually get benefited. 
You know, I, I spoke with Cecil Roberts, the president of the mine workers. This was before uh, President Biden took office, I should say. But he was pretty skeptical of the idea of a just transition. And he asked, and I'm paraphrasing here, show me somewhere else where this has happened. First of all, there's never been a just transition in the history of America, which is a pretty bold statement, but a very accurate statement. You can go around the world and find very few just transitions. So as we talk about creating a just transition, the odds are not with us, are they? He's making the argument that you can't find such an example. You're really kind of up against it. You're, you're kind of inventing this from scratch, aren't you? Or, or is there a model that you can follow for a just transition for coal country? You know, I'm not sure the phrase just transition is doing justice to the issues we need to do. You know, there's no question that President Biden cares about fairness and he cares about equity. Those are sort of part of who he is as a person. He's a very value laden individual and he brings those to the table. And far be it for me to question uh, Mr. Trumpka, but he's not wrong that in the past there's been transitions and there's been no support for that transition. And I think what we've seen is a lot of loss in coal jobs now for a couple of decades. And so this is really about facing that. And it's about working with those communities about what their opportunities are for economic development and not pretending it's going to happen without support. So we have to actually invest. And if you talk to all the economists still tell you part of the challenge we have getting over this pandemic, which we hope to be over soon with the American Rescue Plan helping us out, is about what are we going to spend money on now? What do we want our future to look like? What does it mean to build back better? And I don't think there's anything that precludes us from looking at workers in labor in building the middle class again as an integral part of that strategy. So when I think just transition, I just think about being realistic about who's left behind and being determined that those are the communities and the workers that we're going to invest in. I do think that this is a, a time of tremendous pain. And if we don't figure out how to make it the best time of tremendous opportunity, then we will have just shot ourselves in the foot. We've given every other country the opportunity to continue to, to lead in the 21st century. And we just can't let that be. We are America. We got to do better than that. And so I think we're going to work with Rich Trumpka and with every other union leader to find out how we can grow the middle class jobs and bring the unions back and make sure that we have a country that we can be proud of. Why is this region important for you achieving your broader goals for climate change, for action on climate change? You know, I think because I think it's important as a matter of fairness and equity that everybody benefit about the future that we're building. The president made it very clear that we're facing a number of very difficult challenges. And there's no reason why we can't think about those challenges and how they intersect and find solutions that do more than reduce greenhouse gas emissions. I want people to know that this isn't about a planet. This is about our people. This is about our families. And if that's your focus of attention, then you have to look at who's left behind. And if we can prove 
prove it to these communities that the United States government under President Biden is for them, not against them, and that we're not fighting against fossil fuels, but for our future, then I think we can win. And there should be no other choice for us moving forward, but to make sure that there aren't continued disinvestments in communities that have been hurt the most. And they, in fact, become the place that we focus resources most carefully. Gina McCarthy is the National Climate Advisor. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you. Thanks so much. You can find out more about the Biden agenda and what it might mean for Appalachia at AppalachiaAmerica.org. At President Biden's recent American Jobs Plan announcement in Pittsburgh, he proposed a $16 billion investment in cleaning up abandoned mines and gas wells. For several years now, local officials, regional planners, economists, labor leaders, activists, and regular folks have been calling for just such an investment. And on Wednesday, April 14th, the Ohio River Valley Institute and Reimagine Appalachia released a timely set of new reports titled Repairing the Damage from Orphan Wells and Abandoned Minelands. The reports detail how Appalachia can tackle the climate crisis while creating thousands of local jobs. Here is the press conference. Welcome. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. My name is Joanne Kilgour, and I'm the executive director of the Ohio River Valley Institute. Today with our partners at Reimagine Appalachia, we're pleased to release two new reports detailing the price tag and opportunity associated with reclaiming and remediating abandoned coal mines and oil and gas wells, and how federal investment can create good paying jobs in the Appalachian region. These reports come at an exciting time for the region. There's an urgent need to address damage to our communities from decades of coal mining and oil and gas development. We're so excited to work with regional champions like Senator Manchin to create a bold infrastructure plan for the region. And we're also heartened to see the overlap in the Reimagine Appalachia Blueprint priorities with President Biden's American Jobs Plan, including reclaiming abandoned mine lands and orphan and gas wells. This work not only has the potential to create significant long-term benefits for our communities, but also to create more than 30,000 new local jobs. Thank you again for joining our, our press event today. And we'll first hear from Ted Bettner, a senior researcher with the Ohio River Valley Institute. I uh, just want to thank, first of all, let's thank everybody for being here. This is the product of months and months of research and talking to officials in uh, the four states that we looked at for this report. Uh, so when we're looking at the Ohio River Valley region, we're talking about Kentucky, West Virginia, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. So this report uh, is looking at identifying the number of abandoned orphan gas wells. Uh, that could be plugged and restored in the Ohio River Valley states. We also looked at the estimated costs to plug and restore those wells. Secondly, we looked at the number of jobs created from a large scale uh, program to remediate and plug these wells and the potential to lower greenhouse gases, especially methane uh, from some of these wells. And we also offer recommendations for a federal program and structure in order to deal with this problem. Uh, as people know, over the last several years, there's been growing attention at the state and federal level to address the problems associated with abandoned orphan wells. 
because of these wells are imposing uh, environmental damage, uh, health and safety damage, and also they're leaching pollutants into the air and water. There's also a huge number of unfunded liabilities associated with the abandoned well problem and the orphan well problem in this country. Uh, so what I'd like to do is to sort of share very briefly uh, some of the uh, top uh, findings of the report. Uh, and okay, so this uh, is looking at the number of abandoned wells in the Ohio Valley states. Uh, we found a total of about 538,000 wells that could be plug and remediated in the four states. And you can see that they're broken out. There's about 160,000 in Ohio, in Kentucky, about 103,000 and all in West Virginia, about 76,000. And in Pennsylvania, uh, we used an estimate from the uh, Department of Environmental Protection there of about 200,000 wells that could be plugged. And we got this data from not only this, uh, uh, from our friends at Frack Checker who looked at state databases, but also we got the plugging cost data based on average plugging costs in those states based on periods of time. Uh, so we collected data on the cost of thousands of wells to plug and arrived at uh, an average cost and we multiply that by the number of wells in each state. Overall, we think uh, that to plug the 538,000 wells that are in the region, uh, it would cost about 25 billion to approximately 34.5 billion uh, on the higher end. Uh, but using that lower end number, we can also look at the potential for job creation, the potential for uh, reducing methane. Uh, also plugging these wells and cleaning up these sites can also improve public safety, health, air quality, property values, and economic development in the region. Uh, it can also improve agriculture, where a lot of these wells are located on farms. It also can address pro private property rights, where people have bought uh, property and these wells are on their property and they're impeding some type of development on their property as well. Uh, but overall, we found that uh, based on uh, uh, data from the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection, they have an industry jobs calculator to estimate how many jobs you can create through investment and plugging wells. And in general, you can create about 300 jobs for every $25 million that's invested. And it's important to note that those are direct jobs. We're not talking about indirect, induced, nor were we talking about jobs in terms of uh, administration in the uh, different programs. So overall, what we found was over 20 years, you could create over 15,000 jobs uh, each year for those years. And that's based on you know, an application that, that the plugging would scale up uh, over a couple of years and then go on for about 20 years, uh, which uh, is possible in order to scale up the program. So what you can see in, in Ohio, we're talking about, about 8,331 jobs created per year over 20 years. Kentucky, uh, 403 mostly because the plugging costs are different in these states as well. So you'll have a lower number of jobs based on the plugging costs for each state. Uh, West Virginia, close to about 2,500 jobs per year. And also Pennsylvania, close to about 4,000 jobs could be created per year over 20 years if we were to plug and remediate the wells that we've identified in this report. Uh, also, we could see the reduction of about 72 million metric tons of carbon dioxide emissions or carbon dioxide equivalent in the region uh, that would help address climate change at the same time, the crisis that we face with that, and also help the industry. This is an industry that has seen large drop in employment over the last couple of, over the last couple of years. 
So in fact, since 2000, between 2014 and 2019, the region altogether has seen a decline of about 13,000 jobs in the upstream oil and gas industry. And that has to, that's development uh, and exploration and drilling. That's what we looked at. Uh, and also a lot of these jobs are projected not to come back in the future uh, from various energy analysts that have looked at it. Uh, so this could not only be a huge shot in the arm to, to the uh, region as a whole, but it could also help people that have lost their jobs over the last couple of years in the industry, gain meaningful employment back in the industry, and also leave enough room for other people who are often left out of the industry to get in the industry to get jobs doing this. Uh, so we see this as a great sort of lateral move to help the region not only uh, do, do something that it's going to have to do anyway, uh, but that can also build uh, jobs and prosperity in the local economy. And the good news is that these are not sort of let's train somebody and pray that they find a job. These are jobs that are identified and that we can get started on today. Uh, and in the report, uh, we also made some other recommendations about uh, what this all could look like. In the short term, uh, you know, we think that Congress should send at least $5 billion to states and tribes to identify, plug, and restore more orphan, orphan and abandoned wells. This would include expanding staff, inspections, improving monitoring, plugging, and reclamation practices. Uh, but we feel over the long run, a federal program with adequate uh, annual funding from the oil and gas industry is needed. Uh, there's two possible solutions for that. Uh, one solution would be to enact the Abandoned Well Act of 2021, which was put out by Megan Millick and Bevan uh, this year. Also, another idea would be to use the Abandoned Mine Reclamation Program as a guide uh, for this that provides precedent of people recall, which Eric will talk about here in a little bit, but that program existed primarily because of the large legacy costs uh, over, over 150, 200 years that resulted in thousands of abandoned coal mines. And we have a very similar thing happening with the abandoned oil and gas wells that we're talking about today. There are literally millions across this country, estimated to be about uh, over 3 million abandoned wells and about 2 million of those are unplugged. In our region alone, there are estimates that are more than a million uh, abandoned wells in the region. So we feel uh, that this could be a way to address that issue. Uh, because if you look at the current rate, we are only plugging about a little over 2,200 uh, wells right now in all of the states that have orphan well programs. They spent about $53 million in 2018 plugging wells. You know, and if we were going to use you know, this current rate that we're uh, on track for, it would take about 900 years for states to plug the estimated 2.1 million oil and gas wells abandoned oil and gas wells in the US. So we also feel that policymakers should consider a national monitoring and inventory system so we can get a good accounting of how many wells are out there and the cost of them, and also include a risk assessment for wells. Some wells might not need to be plugs, some do. Um, there's also a lot more out there than we probably have an idea for, so investing in that. Also research and development, staffing and administration. Uh, plugging practices haven't changed much uh, since the mid 70s. So advancing the technology to ensure that plugging uh, can last a lifetime would be crucial in those efforts. Also job and safety training. Uh, you can, could include regional training centers, making sure that uh, it's OSHA compliant uh, would be a significant step toward ensuring that the, the quality of the work is done well. 
Also prevailing wages and local hiring practices that include women and people of color. So if you look at the oil and gas industry today, uh, over 80% of the people that are in that industry tend to be white uh, and less than uh, 10% uh, are female or people of color. Uh, so giving pathways for people to get into the industry is very important. And this could be funded in several ways. One way would be to scale back or eliminate the oil and gas, oil and gas subsidies that exist today. We estimate those about $11 billion annually, or we could levy a small unit fee on natural oil, I mean, on crude oil and natural gas production, which we estimate around $3.5 billion per year based on projections from the U.S. Energy Information Administration. Uh, but the good news is these things are being discussed at the federal and state level, and there's broad recognition that this is something that needs to be addressed sooner rather than later. And it's very important that the uh, industry is at the table, that we are at the table, and that people can live, work, and raise their families in places they want to be, in places they grew up, and that we can stimulate the local rural economies of this area that have been devastated by deindustrialization over the last several decades. And this is a way to do that to not only address the climate change crisis that we face, uh, but also to address the crisis of, of people not having the work that they need uh, to support their families. I'll be happy to answer any questions later on. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Ted. Uh, next, I'm pleased to introduce Eric Dixon, who is a research fellow with the Ohio River Valley Institute. Eric, over to you. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Eric. I do economic and environmental policy at Orvi, and I'm the author of the Repairing the Damage Report on the Abandoned Mine Land Program, which is a program that was created in 1977 by Congress to repair the damage from the coal industry for the more than 200 years prior that the coal industry had been uh, pulling coal out of the ground. So when people think of abandoned mine lands, I think uh, they often think of strip mines or deforested areas from surface mining. And there are certainly lots of AMLs or abandoned mine lands that are like that, but there are also a number of different problems that are caused by AML damage, including water pollution, including streams that are clogged from sediment that's come off of these sites into nearby waterways, um, and also including gases actually leaking from underground mines and uh, underground and surface coal mine fires. So, you know, it's, it's damage to land, air and water. It's not just kind of strip mining damage. Um, and there's this figure that's, that's widely thrown around as the size of the remaining abandoned mine land problem, which is around $11 billion. $11 billion. That's the official estimate from the Office of Surface Mining Reclamation and Enforcement. And one of the main goals of this report is to look into the size of that problem uh, if you account for some other costs. So it's kind of widely talked about among AML officials that this $11 billion figure that's widely cited is, is a lowball estimate and potentially by billions of dollars. So we wanted to look into that and see if you were to account and adjust for some things, what would that figure look like? $11 billion represents the current official estimate, but if you adjust for inflation and you add in 
the engineering design costs to actually design these reclamation programs and the administration costs to administer the, rec the reclamation of the remaining uh, problems, you're looking at about $22 billion um, as of 2020. So that is about, you know, double the size of the official problem. Um, and it's probably going to get almost certainly going to get larger, the size of the problem in the future, because these sites deteriorate. And there's a number of sites that we just don't know about yet. You know, a lot of these are on private property and we, you know, officials may not know of them until, you know, we're constantly discovering them. So if you add on another five point billion dollars in projected abandoned mine lands to be added to the inventory in the next 30 years, we're looking at about $26 billion worth of the size of the damage relative to, you know, the official estimate of $11 billion. Well, that tells us a couple of things. If we look at the 43 year history of the program so far, we've only reclaimed about 27% of the total size of the damage, which, you know, that's important work that's happened, but there's a lot more to go than we've done so far. The size of this problem is absolutely massive. And the problem represents a number of impacts for the planet and for people. So one of the, one of the things that's not talked about as much with abandoned mine lands historically is its potential impacts on, uh, on climate change. But one of the things that this report looks into is methane leaks from abandoned coal mines. Um, and the EPA finds that abandoned coal mines both before 1977 and, and after 1977. Together, they are the 11th largest emission source of, of methane uh, in the country. So these can be, these abandoned mine lands could be a considerable source of methane emissions. And there are underground mine fires that develop and actually coal waste piles that can burn. Um, there's 7,000 acres of these mine fires uh, on abandoned mine lands across the country, at least 7,000 acres. And, you know, those also uh, emit carbon dioxide. We, those are kind of unmonitored. We don't know the extent of those emissions, but that's another potential large source of greenhouse gas emissions from, from abandoned mine lands. There's also a lot of poor vegetation on these sites that isn't sequestering the carbon that it could be if, you know, we had reforested these sites. And because of the poor vegetation, there's a lot of erosion or, you know, water carrying sediment from these sites to waterways nearby, clogging streams. So there's at least 5,500 miles of clogged streams from AMLs across the country. And that would stretch across the entire continental US if you were to, you know, flatten them all out. Um, and this is contributing to water pollution and flooding which you know, we're seeing increase in areas like Appalachia due to climate change. And there's also a lot of health impacts from abandoned mine lands in, in addition to the impacts on, on the environment. Over 5 million people in seven Appalachian states live within one mile of an abandoned mine land. And that's one in three West Virginians live within a mile of, a, of, a, of an abandoned mine land. So, if you're in the coal field areas of, of Appalachia, these are all around you, or this damage is all around you. And they can cause injury and death. We know that 
at least a couple dozen people have died as a result of uh, abandoned mine land damage. And often this is, you know, falling off of a high wall or a slope or, you know, drowning in a mine pool or something like that. There's enough water pollution that's being discharged from abandoned mine lands every minute to fill up an, an Olympic swimming pool every two minutes. So it's 320,000 gallons of water pollution every minute from that it's being discharged from abandoned mine lands. But there's something that we can do about this. We found in the report that if we were to, if we were to repair half of the remaining damage over the next decade, then we would create about 7,000 direct jobs and about 17,000 uh, indirect jobs. So those direct jobs include construction jobs, they include engineering jobs at state agencies. They include uh, inspection and administration jobs uh, with the federal government. And 84% um, of this damage, 84% of the damage is in those seven Appalachian states. So, you know, we can assume that a, a massive percentage of these jobs are going to be in the Appalachian areas where there's often persistent poverty and, and unemployment. And if you look at the construction jobs, they actually pay, you know, we wanted to see like what, what do these construction workers actually make in the states where the, the work would happen? Well, they make above the poverty threshold, but often below a living wage threshold. And that's something that we go into in the paper and you can, you can dig into those statistics if you like. But I think to me that suggests that like these are, you know, these aren't bad jobs, but there's a lot more we can do to make sure that these are really good jobs. Um, and I, I include a number of policy recommendations in the report, um, but those include, you know, things related to labor standards and they include things like creating a public reclamation jobs program in a new CCC, which to me would ensure that these jobs are accessible not only to former coal workers who are looking for work, but also to, to people experiencing poverty in these areas that might not have construction experience. You know, this would be a pathway for them into this kind of work. So I'll, I'll end there and pass it over to Joanne. Thank you so much, Eric, for presenting on your paper. And next, I'm pleased to say that we're joined by Joe Pizarczyk, who is the former director of the Office of Surface Mining Reclamation and Enforcement. Joe, thanks so much for being here. You're welcome. You're welcome, Joanne. And thank you all for attending. Uh, the abandoned mining land problem is massive. Uh, there are hundreds of thousands of acres of destroyed land in 22 states that range from Alaska to Alabama. And as uh, Eric pointed out, the overwhelming majority of them are in Appalachian, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Kentucky, uh, Ohio, Alabama. There are also thousands of miles of toxic dead streams and rivers you know, that were polluted by coal mining. It will take tens of billions of dollars for the government to restore the land and water destroyed by 200 years of unregulated coal mining. This massive problem is also a great opportunity for President Biden to create thousands of jobs. It can also keep people employed as more coal mines and power plants close. And I'd like to point out, these are people who actually pay taxes too. Uh, the federal and state governments have the expertise to put people to work. 
What they need is certainty of funds. We all need Congress to pass H.R. 1734 to renew the abandoned mine land fund that is scheduled to expire this year and to pass President Biden's American Jobs Plan to add uh, hopefully $13 billion to the abandoned mine land fund. Adding $13 billion to the abandoned mine land fund has the added benefit of protecting healthcare for union miners who were abandoned by the coal companies. The government has been providing healthcare for them since the 1990s. Every dollar spent on abandoned mine reclamation generates $1.60 in the local communities. This does not include the value of the productive land and clean water, which are the ultimate in infrastructure, because without productive land or clean water, you have nothing but poverty. The toxic acid mine drainage that flows from abandoned coal mines uh, is the number one killer of streams and rivers. It has killed and continues to kill thousands of miles of America's waterways every day and has done so for more than a century. Acid mine drainage kills fishing, it kills boating, and it strangles the local economies because businesses need clean water. Designing and building abandoned mine, acid mine drainage treatment plants will create many jobs for several years. Once that construction has been completed, there will be permanent jobs to operate and maintain these treatment plants. Every mile of restored stream generates more than $100,000 per year in the local economy. In Pennsylvania alone, there are 5,500 miles of polluted streams and rivers. So you can do the math. There are thousands more in other states like West Virginia, Ohio, Maryland, et cetera. While I was director, Secretary Jewell and I visited a hollow in West Virginia that contained some abandoned underground mine openings. One of the openings was discharging toxic water. It was very high in aluminum. And as that water flowed out of that mine opening and fell to the valley floor below, it was creating aluminum stalactites and stalagmites. It's only time I've ever seen that, but that gives you an idea how toxic it is. Aluminum is one of the most toxic metals in our waters in Appalachia. The head of that hollow was also buried in million tons of abandoned coal refuse, some of which had burned in the past. It was eroding, uh, slumping, and polluting the stream as well. There were people who lived in that hollow just downstream, and that polluted stream water flowed right through their yard. Also, another significant impact we've seen is an increase in rain and storm intensity the past few years caused by the changing climate. This new abnormal normal causes more floods, more abandoned mine land emergencies, and more drainage water pollution from coal mines. Reclamation and reforestation of these abandoned mine lands will reduce flooding and the quantity of toxic water pollution that flows from these abandoned mines. Science has proven that forests consume about 60% of the rainfall. That means 60% of that water won't be flowing downstream causing erosion or flooding. It means 60% of that rainfall will not become contaminated and flow out and destroy more streams. The increased rainfall also causes more abandoned underground mines to collapse and damage homes, schools, and businesses located above those mines. For folks who don't know what mine subsidence is, it's basically like a big sinkhole that we've seen in other parts of the country. The state and federal government abandoned mine land programs 
provide the only funds to address these emergencies. Without this government help, without passage of HR 1734 to renew the abandoned mine land fund, and without $13 billion to be provided by the American Jobs Plan, no one will help these people in these emergencies. We've got an opportunity here to take care of these problems and to help people and to restore the land and environment and create jobs while doing that. Thank you so much, Joe, and thank you to all of our panelists for joining today. The reports discussed in this press conference are available online at the Ohio River Valley Institute. As brought up in the press conference, climate change is bringing increased rainfall to the Appalachian region, and combined with abandoned mine sites, that can spell trouble. Katie Myers from OVR reports on concerns about recent flooding and landslides in Letcher County and surrounding areas. At the head of Letcher County's Mill Creek Holler, folks like Elaine Tanner have noticed that their land is slowly moving. A few days ago, the rains came and the mountain busted open. As Tanner climbs the hill above her house, she says she can see it's shifted, even in the last month. Boulders seem to be tumbling downhill in slow motion, and the trees tip a little forwards. Tanner and her partner started worrying about the hill above their house a few years ago. In 2020, rain caused mudslides on her property. She thinks the worst is yet to come. When those ponds fill up and saturate that bench, that bench is going to drop. The bench is the ledge that Dean Mining, a coal company and subsidiary of Quest Energy, uses to access the mine, right on the crest of the hill. The ponds are supposed to control runoff and hold back water when it rains. In 1999, the previous owner, Consul Coal, got a permit to mine above Tanner's house. Ever since, she says, parts of the mountain have been slipping. And as you look up here, you see the trees, the rocks, the mud, the silt the water coming down the hill at us. How fast is it gonna come? Nobody knows. Dustin White, a community organizer with the Ohio Valley Environmental Coalition, believes that mining and landslides are directly related. Mining has buried a lot of the natural valleys that would you know, channel that water with a lot of abandoned mines, especially the underground mines. Once those close down, nobody is watching those anymore. While Elaine's hill may not look as dramatic as a sudden slide, it's still a serious risk. Dr. Matthew Crawford, who works for the Kentucky Geological Survey, recently completed a study on landslide susceptibility in five counties in East Kentucky. Landslides cost the state over $4 million per year, and that's only counting the ones that get reported. Crawford hopes the study will help counties mitigate disaster by mapping and identifying problem areas. Most landslides in Kentucky are what we, we consider rainfall triggered. For eastern Kentucky, it's a naturally landslide susceptible part of the world. Even though it's a clear and present risk, it's hard to predict when one will hit. And that means few will insure against it. That's because landslides are highly localized, but often catastrophic and expensive. When you have that, I guess it's hard for insurance actuaries to come up with risk maps. Basically, if a landslide hits your house, you can either fix it yourself or leave. Unless a responsible party is identified, the only other option is a federal hazard mitigation grant, which can take years and can involve selling your house to become a permanent green space never to return. Tanner and her partner want to stay. 
but in order to feel safe, they hope that the mining company or someone from the state will work with them to reforest the land so it stays put. This is where I want to be. This is where I want to... There's a family cemetery up on the hill. That's where I'll, I'll go, you know? And I'd like to go there knowing that I'm not going to be covered up with big rocks and mud. Not that I'm going to care at that point. Thank you for listening to this edition of Making Connections News. I'm your host, Mimi Pickering from WMMT Mountain Community Radio.